Hey everybody, welcome to Mount Deer Podcast. We're doing this mobile variety. Yeah. We're driving down the road. Deer <laughs> season has officially started for us, and here we go. Yeah. Um, actually, it'll start tomorrow morning, but it's Sunday and we're traveling. Headed uh, headed northwest and uh, northeast rather, and we've got uh, Jimmy behind us and driving down the road. And we thought we'd try a little mobile podcast and see how it goes. What do you think, Taylor? So if you hear. Uh if you're hearing a lot of whining and car sounds and the wind and stuff, that's that's probably why it's not. My hand stuck in the yeah. jerky bag, right? <laughs> yeah. Not bad, though. Terry made the mistake of giving Taylor some jerky, and he's already broke into it, so we're going to have none for the whole trip because yeah. we've already eaten it all. Yeah, we're, We've uh, only been 10 miles. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, we've only been driving 15 minutes or so, and uh, we're out of jerky now. Lots been happening. Uh, this has been, um, so far, has been decent. Um, lots of people shooting deer, but the one of the things we're noticing is the weights seem to be down. Well, the majority of the does that we've been reporting, we, we're a reporting station, and we have um, deer brought to us, and we weigh them. Uh, we write down all the hunter's information and get some biological information for the state. And the, the does that we've been reporting in our little four-day muzzleloader doe season plus our archery season uh some of the fawns the, the other reporting station that's near me is is reported a, a 36 and a 38 pound fawn and we've done a 40 pound fawn and i don't care so much about somebody shooting a little deer i was a little bit concerned about the weights of course i'm only looking at three um if people had shot more it'd be a real good indication see one of the good things about shooting fawns is that you find out how the herd is doing. Remember, a fawn has never been through a winter. It has only been nursing on mom and eating grass and summer feed. So that part of it isn't a reflection about the habitat. But mom's health is reflected quite a bit in the fawn's weights. Plus, on top of that, um, when the actual breeding has been occurring is another part of that that tends to be reflected. So. The, the fawn information, like on Youth Weekend, is real important to us and uh, at, important to departments. And it, it's a reflection of how the herd is doing. It's, it's one of those like land uh, flags that tells you how the, how the land is doing. You measure the antler beam diameters, especially on one and a half year olds. That's a real important thing. And then you're, you're also measuring the, the weights and getting a mean weight for the average doe you're getting a mean weight for the average fawn and then also too by writing down the geographic area that that fawn comes from and vermont is broken into uh, wildlife management units and each one of the units most states are and the reason they do that is so that they can get a feel for how the land in that unit is doing in vermont ours are our land units are broke up into uh, like geographically sound the similar areas like if you're talking mountains and big woods they're broke up into those if you're talking uh, farm valleys they're broke up into those and only a few units have a real diverse terrain most of them are broke up in a, in a way that law enforcement can work with the roads it's easy to understand what area you're in and then also to it it talks a lot for the geographic area and how it's doing. Um, like if it's climate and it's real nasty and it's a real nasty cold area, 
versus a warmer sunny valley kind of area so they're broke up into these units and uh, a lot of our units especially in the, the recent past like within the last four years uh, have fawn weights have been dropping and the biologists are concerned about that antler beam diameters are smaller and there's another concern uh, some of the antler beams uh, we even measured a few that were 16 millimeters or less in the antler beam diameter on, in a one and a half year old that's that would be a problem for like North or South Carolina or something much less around here we, we like to see bigger antler beam diameters that in northern regions where the, the winters are cold the big thing too with those is that their their mean weights will also be a reflection of how how they're yarding if they yard and, and life is real tough for them but it's not so tough that they birth fawns on top of not eating all that well the fawns are apt they're apt to be lighter and some of our units the fawn weights have dropped uh, enough so that they're really concerned um, when you add to that the antler beam diameters on nearly all the bucks are a little bit smaller and and they're shrinking on a, a long-term average then that usually means the herd health isn't quite what it should be. And once a unit or even a state gets real behind on its carrying capacity, trying to get the herd below carrying capacity, you know, where the land carries the, the, the right amount of animals for sustainability of the land and also sustainability of the herd, like there's a good, nice average so everything stays pretty decent, that's a tough thing to do, and of course, if you get two about two mild winters in a row, it makes it hard. If you got two hard winters in a row, it makes it hard. Um, sometimes even just one big slammer winter can really do a job on on the yarding areas. And if your yards are like at a five, you know, out of ten, they're not good, they're not bad, but they're average. And then you get two slammer winters, it can really take it down to a three. And if the herd is high on top of that, now it may take 30 years for that yarding area to recover so that it could go back to holding a, at least a, a decent mean amount of deer. So, but the only, way, the only way you can really do that, though, is if you either need to let the land knock back the amount of deer and then slowly regenerate over time, or we as, you know, as hunters have to, have to knock back the have to knock back the deer herd in order to let the let your wintering habitats come back around exactly that's you know what you do is you you can't really measure land to say how productive it is and how good it is it's really tough to do because it varies so much but what the best way of measuring the land and how the land is doing is to measure the deer that come from that land so each management unit um, they're writing down where that deer came from and they they'll get a good average for that unit and they'll mix that with the winter severity index, which is uh, every day that it's below zero, that day gets a mark. And then it gets a second mark if the snow is more than 20 inches here in Vermont. So an average winter is about a 46. And um, four years, five, four years, working on, it'd be five years now we, ago, we had uh, the mildest winter we've ever had, which was a nine on the winter severity index statewide. 
the nine was the average. So we had this big boom of fawns. When you have a real mild winter, you get a big boom of fawns and the, and the fawns hit the ground. And then four years later, last year, we were shooting four-year-olds like crazy, the yeah. state was. You know, I, I saw a lot of four-year-olds. The, the buck population, kind of the best way to figure it is to imagine the buck age class structure of button bucks, one and a half, two and a half, three and a half, fours, all the way up to 14. We've had some 14 year olds. Um, if you mad, imagine that population, you'd think of it like a pyramid. The base of the pyramid would be button bucks. There should be more button bucks on the ground than any other kind of buck. The next would be one and a half year olds, and then the next two and a half, and three and a half, and the pyramid would gradually shrink as you go up. And if you think of the population in that way, and then you now look at the buck age class structure, and we're pulling teeth here in Vermont for the last, I don't know, six, seven, eight years now, we've been pulling teeth for rifle season bucks. And by counting the rings in the teeth, you get to find out how old the buck is for sure. It's like 80 odd percent accurate, 80, 80 almost 90% accurate. So they're counting the rings and they're finding out just what the buck age class structure is. And what you end up really, what we see here in Vermont, especially, Jimmy stopped for fuel, did he? Or is he still coming? I think he no, he just, he ended up just behind us a little bit. It's dynamic, this traffic situation. What you end up with is a, a pyramid of button bucks making up the base of the pyramid. And then, you know, the next class up is one and a half and two and a half and threes is it's really starting to narrow. And then when you get to four, five, six, all the way up to 18s, it's, it's shaped more like a flagpole than it is a pyramid. Right. Because we, we go right after a lot of those older ass uh, older age we're gonna have to edit that one probably the older age bucks um, it, it the, the pyramid will now be shaped like a, a base and a flagpole and in order to save them older bucks um, and not shoot them you have to find a way and Vermont went to one buck and hope that is a another way of doing it I mean you can go three on a side or four on a side or something like that in hopes of getting them to stay around a little bit longer but the, the does um, we're seeing, especially from Williamstown, a town right close to me, we're seeing quite a few really light ones. Um, and even the fawns are fairly light. This year we hardly have any mass crops, uh, very little nuts, very little uh, apples. And that once the corn is cut, that those bonuses, those bonus crops, they're not there every year. You know, apples aren't there every year, but this year it was, just hardly any at all and last year was a bumper crop i think we had apples all the way into spring and we also because it was so dry like vermont and um, most of new england was in a drought we didn't get any rain you know we were all praying for rain by the time the end of the summer was rolling around and all the corn and all those all the crops that you know that are grown in larger numbers and larger volume by farmers and stuff around here really didn't have a chance to get to get going and there was a there was high competition for anything that was growing well you know with all the all the crows and the bears and all the all the animals that you know kind of will uh, scavenge off that you know it was it was hard with the lack of rain which also meant that the the natural foliage that occurs in the woods also was a bit stunted as well because yeah, didn't didn't get up. any rain at all yeah it was dried up for sure rain no question and the the 
the years when there's hardly any mass crops and there's really no bonuses and the animals aren't eating really good, their body recognizes that and they put on a lot of fat stores. Their, their body recognizes we're not eating good and we need to save as much as we can. So the fat stores that we've been seeing on even some of the, the does and even the lighter deer is really good. That part is good. So they made as much use of the summer feed as they possibly could. And, and having good summer and fall forage is really good for deer because they, they can take that into the yard with them, right? That fat, when they go into the yard, helps them get through. If the winter ends up being um, six weeks of you know, standing around, not eating hardly anything, and just getting by on the bare minimums, the deer can take it you know a, a, a deer can go for a long time with how hardly any feed at all and make it but when it lasts for 12 weeks or 14 weeks when the winter is really rough and hard for for a, almost double that length of time that's when you really start losing lots of deer and also too a lot of the does will uh, absorb one or two of their fawns if they're not doing well they'll reabsorb them especially if the winter is real early and uh, of course we don't find the, the dead deer out in the woods like we used to because the coyotes and the birds just eat them right up and, and you just find this big fluff of hair and you don't know exactly how or why the deer died sometimes. So it's, it's a dynamic thing and part of the point of shooting a doe is that when you shoot the doe, she's not wasted and whether you shoot her early or you shoot her late doesn't really matter because you're not, you're not wasting her. Her fawns, if they're fair size, usually have a pretty reasonable chance of making it, even though they will do better with mom around to help them through the winter and to help them spot danger and, you know, that extra alertness is really good. But also, too, if they're really small and they don't make it through the winter, there's an extra few deer that will actually help get the population back under control. and. I know it seems kind of heartless and, and the majority of us are, are in our feelings and our ways of shooting it. You know, shooting a, a pregnant mom is not cool. Shooting a, a mom that's caring for little ones doesn't seem cool. And when we do shoot a doe, whether she's pregnant at the time or she hasn't been bred yet, um, whether the fawns that she's about to have or not have are actual or their potential fawns by shooting a doe you're taking out three deer now everybody says that's so bad to shoot a doe and take out three deer well whether she's actually pregnant or she's about to be pregnant doesn't matter because you're still taking out three deer and the whole point is to take out three deer there's a coyote took it hard right there we're on the interstate now when you, when you shoot a doe and you take out her potential fawns, you're actually only having to kill one deer. If she bursts those fawns, now technically you should be shooting three of them, right? So it does the most amount of good with the least amount of harm to shoot the doe and get her out of the way and actually kill three by only shooting the one. So it does the most good with the least amount of harm. And the reason you do it isn't for the deer, really. It seems like it isn't, but it actually is, it's really about the land. You're doing it to keep the land viable and to keep its carrying capacity in a high amount. 
You can keep your deer herd as big as you possibly can, but if you ignore the land, it's gonna shrink no matter what. So when there's, it seems like, especially if you're used to seeing lots of deer, right? We, we get in this mode of, you know, that's way less deer than we used to have, you know? That part of it really almost doesn't matter compared to what the land thinks. You know, Mother Nature says we need the deer numbers to come down. She whispers it quietly, right? She doesn't scream unless there's a storm, right? Something really huge, right? Then Mother Nature does some screaming, right? The tornado. <laughs> but the fawns, when they're smaller and lighter and they die easier, they're not robust and they're not doing well. They're tiny when they go into a winter. That's right. That's a whisper, right? And they just die and fade away, right? The coyotes and the bob, the bobcats and and starvation and disease and roadkill and all those things, right? You have to grow a deer for all of those things because everything kills deer. And even a lack of trees will kill a lot of deer, especially young trees that they can reach. And when the snow is really deep, all that new forage that grew this last summer, the the, the sweetest, smallest most tender little shoots down near the ground that the deer will go out in those brown fields and you'll say, what is that deer eating in those brown fields? There's nothing there in the spring, right? That, that, that field that you brush hogged and you killed all the little trees and now the root systems are growing brand new little browsing sprouts that are only three or four inches long and the deer are, are picking at them in the spring. You know, those are really important things. I, I try and brush hog uh, every other year, every third year. So I let some grass grow. I keep the trees from taking over. But I also let all those root systems generate all these new little young buds. It makes, like, you don't want to walk in one of my fields with bare feet, right? All the stubs and stickers that are sticking up from that, they're sharp and they'll poke you. But it's actually really good for the deer because it makes this root ball underneath the soil that will grow little little tender shoots of trees, right? And it's a big root system growing a little small shoot so the, the root system grows fast. And of course the deer keep cropping the, the tips off and they'll keep chopping at it and it'll make this little food mushroom right down near the ground with that one root ball. So having a stubbly field that's trying to grow with goldenrod and younger trees and stubs in it is really good for the deer, especially in the spring. So I try not to brush hog too often because, yeah, they eat the legumes, right? the clovers, the alfalfas, the, the leafy grasses. They like those. A lot of the, the um, bigger kind of things that we would think of as weeds, right? Uh, milkweed and uh, goldenrod and uh, what's the, uh, the nettles, right? Deer just love all those little tiny seeds and they'll pick at all that fluffy stuff. I don't know how they get it off their tongue, right? all that little goldenrod fluff but I, I've watched them just lick the goldenrod fluff and get those itty bitty little seeds you know deer are really a browsers they, they take a little nip here and a little nip there and they just they just pick at it real gingerly and they're not like a cow that just goes out and feeds on tons of cellulose you know grass which is really hard to digest so having a real diverse you know older field that you pick at is really especially good in the spring when when the deer it's been protected all winter the deer can't eat it it's under the snow but in the spring when the snow rots away they go to those brown fields that are kind of brushy and they it's really important feed for them when they come out of the winter you know there's a lot of little things that you can do and the more you study what deer really love to eat it makes a huge difference
the uh, one of the things that I noticed is a lot with um, a lot like when you're trying to you know suggest what kind of deer people need to pull out of the herd in order to best impact um, impact the deer growth and to you know for the overall health of the herd you know whether it's how uh, what your buck uh, age structure is that you're shooting for and uh, what your antler point restrictions are and things of that nature as well as what what you do for doe regulations and for doe seasons and all these other things it's hard to kind of suggest a science-based approach to how you should manage your land as well as how you should uh, interact and use your deer uh, deer tags in the in the season because you know a lot of us have certain ideas about what we what we will and what we won't shoot and uh, how we can even manage our land and that was something that we talked about in uh, how we talked about in another uh, podcast and in another YouTube video was talking about you know managing your land um, to be a deer yard in a place where you know deer can grow and you know you can keep fawns and places where they have shelter and and the right the right habitat and the right browse but you know in new england what's kind of what's kind of the best like rule of thumb as far as what you should manage your property for if you want to you know bring up your local carrying capacity it you you have to almost think of the forest especially like on either like a wildlife management unit area size or even at a state size right if you had an aquarium and it was in your living room and you just said, I want tons of fish and you just shoved tons of fish in it and you didn't care about the aquarium, keeping it clean, you had all kinds of food and you just poured the food right in there and you had tons of fish in there, what are you going to have in a short while? Right? Dead fish. Yeah, because number one, they're all crowded, they're fighting, they're competing, they're also like making a mess of it, right? So you'd, you'd want something to keep it clean. Um, the viability and the disease spreading attempt potential in that super tight aquarium, right? So it's really important that you have the right amount for the size. And that's one of the things that wildlife needs. You know, it needs food and water and cover, but it also needs space. Space is really important and we need enough space between our deer. And when you take 200 deer and you feed them all and you pour them into a little tiny spot, what it, what's the aquarium going to look like? It's not going to be in good shape. And of course, it will negatively impact the surrounding forest right in that area. Say you're pouring the, pouring the feed right out and they're artificially maintaining too many deer in a small area. The disease spreading potential, right? How many times does it get worse as you increase the herd size? You know, it's exponential. Then when you add the destruction of the local um, tree ages also to tree species um, try growing a small yellow birch tree in a deer yard you can they are trimmed and trimmed and trimmed and trimmed and like some of the little small ones in places especially near us or even in Maine in some areas where there's lots of moose why every tree is chewed it's like a bonsai tree and it's 35 years old and it's an inch tree you know so the browsing and, and how they affect the wood and even the types right you'll see more beech you'll see more white pine and species that deer don't eat as much you'll see more evasives when there's too many deer right so all those things matter and you have to think of it in that kind of aquarium style thing when I first started wondering you know what's the deal 
and I start going to Fish and Wildlife board meetings and I start listening to all the, at the deer hearings and stuff and I listen to the biologists and I hear what they have to say and I, I, I listen to the department and then I'm just looking at the people and I'm keeping an open mind about it. I'm not going in with my own opinions. I'm just seeing what's what and filtering for the truth, right? When you're always seeking and you're, you're filtering for the truth and I see what's going on, it's really quite an involved process to see what the people who care so much, I, all the different branches of government I've seen in my life, uh, fish and wildlife especially, has been really made up of some really caring people, especially in on the department staff and also too of the volunteers, like on the, the boards and the commissions and stuff like that, where they really listen to the science and they listen to the people's wishes because let's face it, um, politics surrounding government is going to be right you have to have some politics as human beings involved right there's going to be some politics and the whole purpose of the science when it comes to the fish and wildlife department's mission is really important because they're they're taking an unbiased scientific viewpoint they're collecting data and coming up with ideas and then throwing them out to the public and saying, well, you make the decision. These are your deer. We're not going to decide, you know, whether to uh, have a, a antler point restriction. That's up to the people to decide. So they ask the people and the people make the decisions. And then they, in turn, say, well, this is what we think the results of your decisions will be. And um, they offer suggestions and everybody kind of comes together in a mix of viewpoint and so far it's been one of the best really wildlife government ways that's it's the best system so far that I've seen I, I've looked at like Germany and a lot of the other ones where they have a totally different system and I think if everybody really checked out how other countries run their fish and wildlife show it, you would you would love the way it is here that's definitely one of the things that like because you and I we talk about the department stuff a lot you know, we've had a lot of involvement with the department over the years with volunteering and things like that. And, you know, with mom being on the board, super into the lawmaking process and, you know, hearing. And we've gone to countless, uh, countless board meetings and, you know, places, times when they were making new legislation and bringing up new ideas for how we should manage um, in the state of Vermont. The Fish and Wildlife Department is basically, you know, in, in the most basic kind of idea is mostly a buffer between... Uh, what the people wish for their public resource uh, and what science thinks that we should do with them. And, you know, the, their job is to make an abundant and healthy, you know, uh, game species and, you know, natural things that grow and, and live on the land uh, for future generations and for our consumption. It's because conservation is the wise use of and not the locking away of. And, you know, as soon as you now have to take into account what the people think and it's not just a science-based thing because you know just science isn't isn't good enough to manage because the people you know pay taxes and protect and, and you know take care of uh the wild and and they should have a say in what happens with it because you know it every deer and every bird and every tree in a sense belongs to the people and the land patches that it all sits on belong to the individual the individual has you know sovereignty and has rights over a certain area of land and not the things that grow on it as much um and 
everybody because they live in different places and different have ge- different geogra- ge- geographical um, things happening they're all going to see different perspectives and different amounts of animals and different kinds and you know different health and different diversities which now when we all come together and try to make a statewide rule it makes it really difficult to try to work something out and you know we've seen that so much where half the people don't like the new rules that the department had just put in place for managing the deer herd where in certain zones you're allowed spike horns and in other zones you have to um, follow the APR which is, has to have a fork on one side and you know the certain doe limits and tags and all these other areas and in certain urban areas it's really hard to get the deer numbers down because note one nobody wants to hunt there and two it's all posted in private property because the majority of Vermont is private owners of land that you know and now what are you going to tell somebody to do it's you can't manage the forest of vermont as well because it all belongs to individuals and you're not just going to go tell somebody what they have to do with their land for them to you know manage deer that way well like the north american model of wildlife conservation is that the people own the wildlife no rich king you know owns it all and just because it's on your land you don't own that right and if we keep that in mind, that everyone owns the wildlife and it's for everyone, and we manage it along those lines, and the department is like the police and the science behind the people's decision. It's the people's decision what happens. And yeah, there's going to be some, some everybody's going to have some mixed ideas about how to go <laughs> there's about gonna, it. There's going to be some squabbling. Right. But what, it, what happens is that they protect it and keep it but they dole it out to the people. Yeah. Here you go, but don't take too much, right? Yes. That, that's kind of what's going on. And they, they do their best to, to run a nice happy medium and not have dramatic swings in populations, dramatic yeah. swings in what happens to the land. And you know, man, he doesn't like big waves, right? In nature, everything comes and goes in waves. And you know, populations will go up and down. We like consistency for sure. Yeah, and we want this like farm just produce ten thousand bucks every year where we'll be happy close enough, right? And in a way, yeah, that's true. But sometimes you can tweak things and help it out a little bit. And when you notice things are going good or not so good, um, sometimes what we do can really have a big effect on it. And we too, right, we're a product of nature. If anything, we probably could use a people biologist. It wouldn't hurt a thing, <laughs> right? Because we have such a big, such a big influence. That's a not gonna lie. That's actually a really good idea. Yeah, <laughs> really. You you almost need a people biologist in a way to explain to science and to the people how people's behaviors and values affect their decisions and what they decide. You know, you can apply for a doe permit and say, I don't think it's good to kill any does, and rip your doe permit up and throw it away. Meanwhile, they print seven more and say, look, we've really got to do this. It's that serious. We, it's in, in Vermont, that's, it's seven to one. You issue seven doe permits to get one doe dead. So when you see this 20-odd thousand does that need to be shot, and I don't see that, right? And you say, well, what's, what's the matter with shooting that many does? What's the real reason behind it? What's your motive for never wanting to kill a doe? Is it so you can get easy deer, right? It, it might make it more difficult for you to get yours, right? All those things come into play. And of course, it's part of a, a scientific outlook that needs to be taken in because the people's values, if they value larger, older bucks, or they just value high deer numbers, or they really value um, their shrubs out front, right? 
All those things make a difference to how you go about managing your herd and coming up with a happy medium that works. What do you think? Uh, what do you think of the regulations in Vermont versus you know other neighboring states? Are you happy with what's going on and what's kind of been your your perspective? What have you seen on the land, and do you think it's uh, made a difference? Like, you know, not. Uh, not being able to shoot spikes and things like that. Do you think that's made a difference on in the deer herd in Vermont? Um, most of the time, there's like a delay in how things get done. And when you say, say the land gets bad and we notice it, we're already a year behind when you notice it, right? A deer has a hard winter. The following year, we measure how last winter was by killing deer and measuring the deer that came out of last winter's woods, right? When you're in an area and winters are the biggest number one killer of your deer, you know, winter severity is your our biggest, because we're so far north and the winter's snow and it's cold, we're near the northern edge of whitetails, right? So when you see the delay, right? The, the woods are bad and the deer came out of the woods and they're not in very good shape. It's now been almost a year that the woods have been bad for, and we now are just finding out by shooting the deer and measuring them right now from last winter. So there's one year of a delay. We notice the woods are bad, and we adopt some legislation. We say, okay, we gotta, we gotta kill some does. We, we've gotta kill more of them in this area. Over here, the herd has room to grow, so let's not kill any, right? You make those decisions. Now, it takes almost a year to get that legislation all passed in the rule book and all ready to go for the following year. So as soon as the land gets bad, you're two years behind the eight ball before you even start to try and fix it. Now, say you had a rainy rifle season and you needed to kill lots of deer and you're not really able to get the deer numbers down to where you want them in one year. And say it takes two or three years to get the level down to where you want it. Meanwhile, the woods were bad, and now they're getting exasperated even more. You can get four or five or six years behind the eight ball before you even begin to start correcting it. And the delay that happens, that's the part that's disappointing for me. Because it, there's so much of a delay in, in how long it takes to get things back under control. So getting out of control is a major problem for us. We don't want it to be out of control and as soon as your herd gets above or beyond carrying capacity getting it back under control is such a job because the land is not so good and then it gets worse while you're trying to fix it and that again makes another extension right because it has to the worse the land gets the longer it has to sit to come around so that's how she would solve the problem, right? She would slowly starve them all until they were all gone. And then she would come around and then the deer herd would come back up again, right? That part of it is exasperating for me because it takes so long for us to kind of notice what's going on and then do something about it and have results. And that's the, that's the difficult part for me because I, I've seen, I, I watched the moose herd get really big and 10 years before we really started knocking them down, I'm like, we need to kill them. There's too many. There's just too many moose. And they were like, yeah, I suppose we can turn it up. And I suppose we can turn it up. And they did, right? They, they just kept turning it up a little bit, a little bit. And, the, and this was the first 
you know, moose explosion Vermont has ever had. And we had this like moose explosion that came along. And most of it was centered around uh, one piece of machinery in the timber industry, right? The fell buncher. As soon as a fell buncher came into mainstream use and it replaced 30 guys with a chainsaw and we started really knocking timber down and there was bigger clear cuts, they were huge and it was a real efficient way of, of getting the trees down and it made huge areas with new successional forest and the moose were in Quebec and then they saw they had this giant food source just suddenly become available and they moved right in and the, the herd just exploded and we had never really known what too many moose was we didn't know the magic number that we needed to be and of course that's that's kind of normal everywhere at first you just don't know especially with a new species kind of moving in you know Yellowstone will have to learn what a good number of wolves will be right so there's a learning curve and sometimes there's a delay there that I'm not always real satisfied with but I also understand it and I understand the timber industry and and the fell buncher and and what it did to wildlife right a lot of times you can follow the dollar signs and figure out what's going to happen to wildlife next do you think that the do you think that the legislation though for the deer numbers and uh for the trying to change the buck uh age class structure do you think that that has been positive or negative on the land and the deer herd as a whole uh actually a lot of the rule changes that they did made make were pretty good um you, you you don't want to make drastic rule changes really fast because that can have a you can get into this like collie wobble it's like riding a bicycle and turning the steering wheel real hard you don't want to do that you want to look <laughs> right I just thought of when we were bringing uh, we were oh just, yeah you had the tree stand Casey, on Casey was bringing down tree stands with with the tractor and I was I had uh, one with the bike and we were bringing him down for hunter safety and I hit a pothole and it kicked my tire sideways and I hit the dirt going 30 down it with a tree stand in my hand I got smashed up never ride a bicycle with a tree stand in your hand okay, <laughs> in, ca- in case you in case you couldn't just like know that off the bat I didn't and I got beat up for it <laughs> <laughs> oh that was a flashback but it goes to show like you want to drive the the wildlife vehicle looking way down the road and you don't want to drive like a teenager just looking over the hood from year to year because you'll you'll drive down the road and you'll be wobbly right one of the things that's hard to do that though is our system for measuring and our system for uh, taking into account how the land is actually doing and the sample sizes and the sample areas and the information coming in from the public is really hard to get super, super accurate numbers because it's such a dynamic and hard thing to measure. You know, the deer herd and the trees and the health of the land is super, super hard to do. And like the department's job is a tremendous feat. Oh, and not to mention like to listen to tens of thousands of people and what they want if you had you had the public into it now it's it's a head shaker right there's a lot going on there and the like in vermont here the fish and wildlife board is the the rubber bumper between the department the science and the police right and in wildlife protection in keeping of the wildlife resource for everyone was so important that the legislature gave that division its own law enforcement branch right that's why we have game wardens because it's that important that everyone own the wildlife everyone share the wildlife and we do it for the good of the wildlife and for the longevity of it and for the people and it's really important that we have a good relationship with our land 
and that's the kind of the whole point of it. I mean, if anybody, if there's a department of government that's going to save the world, it's the Fish and Wildlife Departments, right? They're supposed to marry the people and the land, right? They're the minister. And it's important that they they give out the right words and the right encouragement and help maintain what's going on and at least be a good mirror to show how the decisions are going, right? A, a good looking glass to see what's up. And and they really do their best. And that's the part that I've been so impressed with. The, the people involved over the years, oh, sure, they, there's a few that have their little issues and stuff, you know, and, and they may even have some, their own little personal agendas at, at some point here and there. But I, I don't trust a single person with my wildlife. And I, I told the board this one day in the department. I said, I don't trust a single person with my wildlife, but I trust everybody together. It's real important that we all kick in. I, I trust 14 mines a lot better than one. And I, our country was set up that way. It's the best system so far. And if somebody can dream up a better system, let me know. I'd love to hear about it. For now, um, I think it's a way to go. It's been really promising. It has its shortcomings, but I've been impressed with a lot of it. And I'm really hoping that everything continues to go as good as it has. And yeah, you're going to have years when, like this year, Vermont's herd, probably of all the New England states, Vermont's herd's probably in, not in the best health. I would say we probably have the poorest herd of, of all the four or five New England states. Um, but which, which is mostly just a reflection of the land itself. Yes, you know, it's of just the forest and of the weather and a lot of things that are beyond control. Yeah, and we have a lot, there's a lot of different factors that like, you know, like we've been saying this whole time that come together to really determine what a deer herd's health is going to be either local or statewide you know and in an entire region like New England we really have a difficult a difficult job ahead of us that where the amount of actual state uh, managed land is small in comparison to the amount of private land and with harsh winters and you know really really uh populated areas for what the land can hold you know we're we're definitely over carrying capacity in most areas which makes it difficult to grow really good forest and all the all the trees that need to be cut are not worth the money to cut them which makes it make that's what kind of holds back the you know the one solution is to manage our forests better and to you know provide space and allow soils to build up and grow like really good uh, really good trees and really good brush and things like that and we're we are we're actually seeing a giant spike in invasives in New England we there's a horrendous amount of new species that are coming in and that are going to change the forest dynamic almost completely like you know your japanese knotweeds and your your honeysuckles and your buckthorns and things like that that fruit and that seed a lot more often and now the you know they're kind of filling in the empty space where there are no leaves and no brush in the woods and the birds picking all the berries and moving all the seeds and it, what it does is it ch it's going to change our ecosystem next 50 years Vermont's in New England Almost all of it is going to have a completely different ecosystem, I think. It's going to change, ain't no doubt. And you have to say, well, what's Mother Nature thinking here? Right? Mother Nature is really about harmony. And everything's gentle and easy and just go, even though every now and then there's some teeth, right? Right? That's not so gentle and easy, right? So when you see lots of like almost anti-wildlife, anti-human plants, you say, well, what's Mother Nature got in mind here, right? Maybe... Maybe there's too many people. Let's put in something they can't use, right? This will bring the people down, right? Right? You, know, it, you start wondering these things. Now, 
the best way to work, the best way for things, and the best working system that we have as an example of what to do is Mother Nature herself, right? She is the working method. So when she has a drastic change or things alter for some reason, you have to stop and say, well, why would she do this, right? Why would she create a species that will just destroy the planet, right? right? People feel that way about human beings. It's like, just a second here. She made them, and there's probably a good reason, right? There was a day of a dinosaur, and there was a day of a redwood, and now it's the day of the human, right? And maybe something else is coming along. Either way, you have to step back and look at it and and not be too biased in your opinions. Not it, to be too well, biased. mostly it's to not, to not be too stuck with what you think is the direction that we should be moving in, yeah. which is one of the hardest things to do is to let go of what your ideas for the deer herd, your ideas for what the land should be, your idea for what kind of social things should be going on surrounding nature and, and all these things and what kind of the real good, solid, concrete ideas for conservation are. It's like you might not have all the information. There might be a piece that you're missing. And that's one of the things that we constantly, you know, kind of reiterate to ourselves is just because it looks a certain way to us and our experience has been a certain thing, that doesn't mean that we're kind of seeing exactly what's happening. You're, most of the time, we're missing a lot more information than we think we are. And not to mention the blame, right? Everybody seems to want to be offended lately. They're offended by everything. And then they all want to lay blame everywhere. And when you take your offense out and you take your blame out and, and now you take responsibility for a little bit, at least for the understanding, you want to take responsibility for your understanding. If you're upset with something, odds are good you don't understand it real well, right? So it's time to understand what's going on around us, time to pay attention. Human beings are going to have to learn to pay attention or they're not going to have a world left, right? And it's time to understand what the Beth's method is for working. And Mother Nature is that wonderful example that's been doing it all these years since the dawn of time for us, right? She's our oldest teacher. She taught us what cold weather does, <laughs> what a ham will do when it's bouncing off the chainsaw. <laughs> the, the amount of stuff we have in this Jeep. If you guys could see this, you'd laugh. Like, there's not a whole lot of space. Can hardly see out of any of the windows in here. We're we're freighted, that's for sure. <laughs> it's a lot worse when you stay for a whole month. There's <laughs> gonna be a lot of jumbling around as we move down the road here, getting to the twisties. This this uh, section of uh, this road right here is going to be Moose Central Runover Hit Moose area. They have logged the side of this road down through here. Right when you log right next to a road, what does that do? It exposes tons of wildlife to the road, and now they'll come down to eat and then get run over. Careful where you put your tables for the animals. Man, oh man, this area here is going to be high hit in the future. But with all that aside, you know, management and, you know, what, what we think the kind of future is for the deer herd and what we've been seeing, it doesn't, you know, that, that definitely doesn't really impact hunting season as a whole not for us i'm looking so forward to this and we've you know we're finally on the road and it's kind of it almost hasn't really set in that it's deer season yet not for us because we haven't had a chance to get out into the woods really but you know we're driving along we're up in uh, up in new hampshire right now still making our way across to, over to maine and um jimmy's uh <laughs> he's actually been quiet he hasn't been hasn't been chiming in he's probably he's probably jamming got his head bopping back and forth he's in his red truck behind us I get my that telephone pole. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh man, I know. I can't wait to get. That's one of the things that's going to be great about camp is uh, we're going to put out as many podcasts as we can, and uh, you know now Jimmy Jimmy won't have anywhere to run to, and he'll uh, he'll have to be on a whole bunch of them. I guess we'll uh, we'll sign off for right now. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have a chance, slide down into the bottom here and uh, leave us a review. If you don't mind, let people know what you think about the podcast and uh, good, bad, or otherwise. And uh, looking forward to so many, so many, so many things we're going to bring to you guys and getting out in the woods and stretching our legs, getting some laughs and getting some footage and uh, where it's going to be a damn good time. If you haven't yet, follow us on Instagram at Mountain Deer and on YouTube and all that jazz as always. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Good luck this deer season. We'll see you in a few days. Happy hunting. Good luck. Have fun. Here we go.